Today's scripture reading is Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Please stand, if able, for the reading of God's word. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once more? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Happy New Year. It is great to be with you guys this morning and back in God's word together. We are going to be in Galatians chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9 this morning. If you're following along in the Pew Bibles, those that are available to you, you can find that on page 974. And as I do every time, I really encourage you to be following along in the, in the scriptures uh, as we work through this passage and really identifying the things that we're pointing out, really seeing that this is God's word. It's what he is speaking to us, not necessarily uh, a man's opinion. And so I do ask and hope that you will follow along. And so as you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of context about the the book of Galatians and a little bit about the passage that we're going to be diving into this morning. Uh, So as many of you may know, the book of Galatians, it's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul. And the letter was written by the Apostle Paul to a group of churches in the region known as Galatia that he had planted during his first missionary journey. And if you want to read about that, you can go to Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14 and you can read all about the happenings of that first missionary journey. Now, most of the believers that made up this congregation or these congregations in Galatia, uh, they, were, they were Gentiles that had come from various pagan backgrounds. So they weren't necessarily Jewish in their background, but they, they were coming from Greek and Roman pagan backgrounds. And one of the things that happened is after Paul had left and finished his first missionary journey and gone to Jerusalem... False teachers, people that we normally refer to as the Judaizers, they came into the congregations in Galatia and they started teaching a false doctrine. They started teaching a a, a false teaching that contradicted and differed greatly from the one that Paul had preached. And their message was simply this. They said that while faith in Jesus is important to being a Christian, that one also needs to keep the law of Moses by being circumcised if you really want to be made right with God or you want to be included among God's people. Essentially, it was this. If you want to be a Christian, then you have to be Jewish as well. And the crazy thing is, is that the Galatians bought it. They rejected the message that Paul had preached to them, and they started following after these Judaizers and started keeping the law of Moses in order to gain righteousness through keeping the law. And when Paul heard about this departure, he penned the letter of Galatians really quickly. And he did this so that he could correct the false teaching and he could call the Galatians back to the truth. And this is what the entire letter is really driving home, is that we are made right before God 
not by keeping the law of Moses, but only through our faith in Jesus Christ. Yet one of the most striking things about the whole letter of Galatians is how heavy it is. Other letters in the New Testament, they deal with topics like persecution or immorality in the church. And those letters don't come anywhere near the passion and the intensity that Paul communicates to the church in Galatia. And so I think this should give us pause as we enter a new year and a new decade as Christ's church. There are many things that are going to concern us in the coming year and in the coming years, both as a church and as individuals. And if we're learning anything from the book of Galatians and from our passage this morning, what we should be seeing is that in reality, the temptation to turn away from God by believing a distorted version of the gospel, that is not only our greatest danger, but should be our greatest concern. And that what we need more than anything is to remember and to rejoice in the details of the true gospel. And so what Paul is going to do in our passage this morning, to keep us from turning away, he's going to present the details of the gospel. And he's going to do that by answering three different questions. Those questions are, what were we really like before Christ? What did God really do through Christ? And what are we really like in Christ? That is where we're headed this morning as we go through this passage. But before we dive in, would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together this morning as your people. For sending your Son to take our sin, to give us his righteousness, to make us your people. We ask that as we spend time in your word this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate our hearts. Help us to receive its truth, that as we remember and we rejoice in the details of the gospel, that you would be protecting us from our greatest danger, and that you would be establishing us as a church for the year and the coming years, that we might enjoy you and be faithful to you as you remain faithful to us in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So Paul's going to walk through this passage, and what he's going to do is he's going to present the details of the gospel. And he's going to do that again by answering three questions. What were we really like before Christ? What did God really do through Christ? And what are we really like in Christ? So Paul begins in verses 1 through 3, he begins by describing what we're really like before Christ. You guys can look in the the passage there. It says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So Paul answers this first question of what were we really like before Christ by using an analogy. And the purpose of this analogy is to combine two very different identities that we find in the world and show how they actually prove one very important spiritual truth. And here's what he's saying. Before Christ, all of us, whether Jew or Gentile, we are exactly the same. We are imprisoned under the law like children and like slaves. Look in verses 1 and 2. 
Paul begins and he turns to those that are seeking to establish their righteousness through keeping the law. And he says, look, even before Christ, Israel was imprisoned under the law of God like children. He says that, where is he? He says he is a child is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. See, Paul uses this analogy. He says, think about children and their inheritance. We all understand that children need to wait until the appointed time in their lives when they're going to receive the inheritance that is rightfully theirs. Now, in the first century, it was very, very common for children, as they waited for this inheritance to be coming of age, they were entrusted to what are called guardians. Now, a guardian was someone, it's often a slave, that was responsible for training a child by correcting their misbehavior, by keeping them from bad influences, so that they would be protected as they waited for their inheritance. Now, in chapter 3, if we look back in Galatians chapter 3, Paul uses this exact same language to describe what God's law was like and is like. God's law was never intended to be a source of righteousness for us or for Israel, but rather it was to function as a guardian, something that was going to expose sin and was going to keep Israel from being corrupted by the influences of the world around them. And what this means is that the law cannot bring freedom from our sin. It can only imprison you. It can only generate in us a longing for the date that is set by the Father. And that's exactly what God was doing through the nation of Israel. And that's what Paul is saying here. But he goes on in verse 3, and he doesn't just describe what Israel was like before Christ, children imprisoned under the law. He turns and describes what the rest of the world, what we were like before Christ. Look in in verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. In verse 3 and in verse 8, Paul simply says this. Before Christ, those who are not of Israel, those were people who were imprisoned like slaves. And our masters were the elementary principles of the world. And if you drop down to verse 8, he says, to those things that by nature are not gods. In the context, what what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to associate this idea of the elementary principles and things that aren't gods with the paganism that the Galatians came from. But if you flip over to Colossians chapter 2 verse 8, you don't necessarily need to do that, but it's interesting to see that Paul takes this idea further. And what he does is he says that the elementary principles of the world, what we were enslaved to before Christ, those are any beliefs, whether they're religious beliefs or secular beliefs, that shape our lives without any reference to Christ. And Paul says all of these beliefs are idolatrous because as we follow them and as we worship these things, we're worshiping something that is not God. And it doesn't matter what type of idolatry we're talking about. What Paul's main point here is, before Christ, you do not control what you worship. What you worship controls you. 
That's true in a religious setting, and that's true in a secular setting. And so as we look at this question of what were we really like before Christ, we need to wrestle with this reality that before Christ, our identity was people who were imprisoned under the law and enslaved to idols. This, this, I think, begs a really important question. When we look around this room, when we look at ourselves in the mirror, when we think about our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, is this what we see? Do we see people imprisoned by God's law? Do we see ourselves hopelessly enslaved to our idols? Or do we see a group of people that kind of have everything together? We're doing okay. And God's word says that what we were like before Christ was hopelessly enslaved, hopelessly imprisoned under the law, that we're all the same, rebellious sinners. These idols can look religious in nature. They can look secular in nature. They can look moral in nature by doing all of the right things or immoral in nature and being lawless in our lives. They could be public idols and very political in nature, or they could be very hidden and private. It doesn't matter. The true gospel that Paul is drawing our attention to this morning says that we are all the same before Christ. And despite what the world says, our greatest need is redemption. That is what we need more than anything else. And so what Paul does next in verses 4 through 6, he's going to answer that second question. What did God really do through Christ? Look in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So to answer the second question of what did God actually do through Christ, he begins with these incredible words, the fullness of time. I cannot stress enough how deeply significant this phrase is. What Paul is saying here in verse 4 is that what God has really done through Christ has not been accomplished through a new religious system. As if Christianity was just another one of the religions that exist in the world. But what he is saying is that what God has really done through Christ was accomplished for us in history. That's what those words, in the fullness of time, are alluding to. The true gospel, it's not about how we live our lives. It's not even about what we do for God. It is about what God has done for you in history. It is a historical message that one places their hope and their trust and faith in. I love how this connects to what Paul has already said. Because Paul goes on and he says that just like the child that longs for the day appointed by his father to receive that inheritance that we talked about uh, in this case of Israel. Paul says... All of history, from the beginning until the coming of Christ, all of history had been looking for and longing for that exact moment 
when God sent his son and his spirit to do two things. To redeem sinners and to adopt sons. So let's unpack what Paul is saying here. The first thing that Paul says here is that through Christ, God has redeemed sinners in history. The idea of the word redeem, a lot of us might know this in verse 5, it means to pay the price of a slave's freedom. We had just talked about how what we're really like before Christ is enslaved to our idols, imprisoned under the law. And you see how this idea of redeem is immediately connected in verse 5 to the idea that we are under the law as prisoners. He says, to redeem those who were under the law. And so the message is really, really clear. The price of our redemption, the price of our freedom, as it were, is righteousness. It's perfect obedience to the law of God. However, because of the sin that we inherit from Adam, and because of our own sin that we commit, we cannot, and you know this, you cannot give to God righteous life. Yet this is exactly what God says he has done by sending his son. And there are two things that Paul draws attention to. First, he says that God's son was born of a woman. And second, that that son was born under the law. Let's look at that first thing. God's son was born of a woman. This means that God's divine son, the second person of the Trinity, the son that had existed for eternity past, he was brought into the world born of a woman, meaning he took on our human nature. He didn't do this for kicks. He did this so that he could redeem humans. You see, he took on human nature so that he could die for your human sin. And the second thing that it says is that he was born under the law, which means that when Jesus, when the Son of God kept the law, both in his perfect nature and throughout his life, it means that his perfect righteousness could actually pay the price for your redemption, the price that God requires. We talked about this in our discipleship class this morning. Perhaps no other passage in scripture here shows the significance of the virgin birth better than this. That being born of a virgin and by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus did not inherit Adam's sin. And therefore, he is truly the only one in history that could be called the spotless lamb. One who could actually, by his life, redeem sinners through his death and by his life. And so God, through Christ, in history, redeemed sinners. The second thing that Paul says is that through Christ, God adopted sons. Look at verse 5 and also down at verse 6. It says that when the fullness of time had come, he sent forth his son to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So we see that God not only sent his son into the world so that we might be redeemed, that is set free from the slavery under the law and to our idols that all of us are facing, 
but he also mysteriously unites us to Christ by sending his Holy Spirit into our hearts and seals our adoption into his family. In the first century, especially in Roman cities, adoption was a very well-known concept. It was deeply associated with the ideas of family inheritance and the idea of rule. Through the legal process, if a person, if a man primarily, was adopted, that man would immediately assume the rights and the privileges, the obligations, and even the opportunities that were associated with their adopted fathers. Now, what's really amazing about this analogy is that class did not affect the process of adoption. And in fact, for those that were adopted in the Roman world, these class distinctions were destroyed when they were adopted. And in chapter 3, if you go back in Galatians and you read about what Paul says has happened in Christ, this language of adoption just obliterating distinctions among God's people, it's really, really clear that that's one of the things that he's getting at. What I love, though, is that in this passage, Paul takes this language of adoption far beyond the legal dynamic, which is important, and we should think about that. But look down in verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is not legal language at all. This aspect of God's fatherhood and this aspect of our adoption as his sons is deeply personal and profoundly intimate. And so this leads Paul to answer this last question. What are we really like in Christ? If we know that before Christ we were enslaved under the law and imprisoned to our idols, but that through Christ in history, God has redeemed us and he has adopted us, we really need to wrestle with what are we really like in Christ? So look at verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And if you looked at verse 9, now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. In this passage, Paul says two things about us. When we are in Christ, because we are united to him by the Holy Spirit, we are fully loved as God's children and we are truly free. So let's look at this first passage here. In verse 9, Paul says that because of what God has done through his Son and by his Spirit, we have come to know God. Or, or rather, and I think he emphasizes this more, more importantly, God has come to know us. That we are known by God. This word know in the Greek, it doesn't mean that we were studied by God as a specimen, or that we now all of a sudden have this idea, a better idea as to what God is like. 
This word in the Greek, know, it's associated with the nearest of relationships and the deepest of experiences, like that of a husband and a wife that know one another. In other words, here's what Paul is saying. Through Christ, God in history has done everything, including suffer greatly for your sin, so that he could bring you back to him. And that despite your unworthiness, you can have the deepest relationship with God. This idea of being known, it does also allude to this idea of being aware of things. And so what this means is that nothing is hidden from God's sight about your life. He knows everything about us. He knows how evil our hearts are. He knows how weak you actually are. He knows every struggle, every thought, and every intention that we have. And if we take just a second to think about that, and we're honest with ourselves, that type of relationship is kind of terrifying. That someone would know us at that level. Yet what we see in this passage, and by using the word know that Paul is using, what he is saying is that to be known by God isn't to be just exposed by God in this sense of vulnerability. It means that you are fully known and fully loved. That's what he is saying. God loves you in Christ with the deepest and the most transforming of loves. And this love that God has toward us in Christ, it leads Paul to conclude the second thing that is true about us in Christ. Not only are we fully loved in Christ, but we are actually truly free in our lives. Look back in verse 7. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is a simple sentence. But it draws attention to something that is so incredibly important for us to understand about the gospel. It declares that in Christ, we, by God's grace, have received a completely new identity. Before, you were a slave to your idols. You were a prisoner under the law of God. That was your identity. And that identity of slave and prisoner was more true of you than any dynamic of your life. But in Christ, because of what he has done in history, now we are sons, co-heirs with Christ, what it says elsewhere in the scriptures. And so as before, before Christ, there was no difference between the child and the slave that we see between Jew and Gentile. Now that Christ has come, there could not be a bigger difference in all the world. Everything changes about you and everything has changed about history because of what Christ has done. You are free from the guilt of the law of God. You're free from the power of sin 
in your life. And most importantly, you are free to love God. And you're free to love others. Because everything has been taken care of for you in history. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul says it this way. It is for freedom, Christian, that Christ has set us free. And if you are led by the Spirit, that is the Spirit of His Son, you are not under the law. It's an incredible shift of identity. This is who you are in Christ. A Son of God who is truly loved and truly free. I think it's on this point of who we really are and what we are really like that we need to spend a little bit more time because most of our life actually revolves around this dynamic of life. And this is why our identity in, in, in Christ is so crucial to understand because here's the point that we need to understand. The identities that we embrace in our lives shape the way our lives go. Let me say it another way. Who we are shapes how we live. Let me just give you a really simple example of this. Here at church, we have a phenomenal team of caregivers and nursery volunteers who for many of us are carefully and lovingly watching our children. The identity of that child care provider, that babysitter, that nursery worker, whatever term, that identity shapes the way that they are living right now as they watch the children. Here's what that means. Because they are this person, they have all of these things that they need to do for the children. But let's be honest. If your child or my child right now starts to cry uncontrollably, or has a need that is greater than what their identity requires them to give, what are they going to do? They're going to come into this service and they're going to find you, parent, hopefully not me right now. <laughs> if my child, if your children need you, the identity of caregiver goes away because the identity of a parent needs to take over. And that is what Paul is saying here. Who you are dictates how you live. When my children cry at night, I get up because I am their father. When we hear God's word toward us, we hear it in Christ as sons. This is who we really are, Christians. This is what we are really, really like. Maybe to say it another way, what God has said about you in the gospel is the most real thing about you. Let me say that again. What God has said about you in the gospel is the most real thing about you. You are not a guilty sinner in Christ. You are a righteous son. You are not a slave to your sin or a slave to your idol. In Christ, you are truly free. Free to overcome temptation. 
free to love God and love others by the power of the Spirit. And here's why this is so dangerous as we go into the new year. The world is full of false gospels. The world is full of false messages that are even filled with good things that promise satisfaction and promise fulfillment and give us identities that we can latch onto. But the reality is, is that these identities, these messages, these false gospels, all they do, Paul says, is enslave us. And so what we need to do, as I hope we've been able to do this morning, is we need to remember and we need to rejoice in the details of the true gospel. This is what we need, church, more than anything else. It's not a list of rituals for us to do. It's not good advice that I hope you follow. It's not a strategy on helping you become some type of better person. The true gospel is just a message that God wants to speak to you. It's the message of what he has done in history to redeem you and adopt hopelessly imprisoned sinners. And that he did this by sending his son into the world and sending his spirit into our hearts so that we would be no longer slaves, but that we would be sons of God, fully loved, truly free through Jesus Christ. That is what Paul wanted the Galatians to get more than anything else. And what we, as Grace Church, as Christians, in the coming year and in the coming decade, must center ourselves on. We never move past the gospel. It's my hope and it's my prayer that we would not be deceived. But that instead, as the message of the true gospel echoes in our hearts, it would fill us with humility and with joy, and would lead us to ask what Paul says at the end of this passage, how can we possibly turn away from God? How could we possibly turn away from this message and back to the slavery of anything else in the world? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, through Christ you have done everything to save us from our sin. You have done everything to redeem us and to adopt us as your children through Christ. Help us to remember and to rejoice in the details of the true gospel, to remember what we were really like before Christ, to really wrestle with the reality that we were and are great sinners before you. Help us to remember what you have done by sending Christ to redeem us and to adopt us. And help us to embrace and live out of the new identity of son that you have given us in him. Block out.
the messages of false gospels that are around us and give us a heart to declare this historical message of the gospel to our friends and our coworkers and our neighbors and to those that do not know you so that you would redeem and adopt more sons into your family. Thank you for your love and thank you for your grace. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.